quite what it's like because I've lost so many of them that I decided to sort of make it. Right. We'll, we'll go ahead and start uh, with prayer and then we'll jump in, okay? Oh, heavenly things that come from the spirit of the truth, Lord, send our presence and those all things, treasure blessings, and give our life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls for a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This week or the next, I will send out what I would call a, a syllabus because I, this past week, created uh, the outline. I knew generally what I wanted to cover, but now uh, I'm using, we, we will be using uh, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, what we sing in the liturgy as the basic backbone uh, at which to approach. There's all sorts of different ways that you can approach catechesis. So this is just, we're going to try this way. Last time we had a little bit of a, a different way, but we're going to use the backbone of uh, the Nicene Creed. So this morning we will talk about, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Next week uh, we'll start, and then there's basically, you could say there are three articles basically in the Nicene Creed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you may think, well, but what about all that stuff that tails into the end? Well, that falls under the article of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we have, with in talking about God the Father Almighty, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, God's preparation of revealing his son Jesus Christ through Israel, uh, specifically uh, the kingdom of God and uh, how he did this, how he revealed himself in the Old Testament. So... Because this is a catechism class and kind of an introductory 101, almost every single one of these like subpoints we could do a whole lot. So we're we're just kind of hitting high points and talking about themes. Hopefully, generally, so that it gives you a, a better an introduction or better understanding of why Orthodox do the things that we do, as opposed to getting really gritty and talking about very specific debates about this is why Protestants are wrong or Catholics are wrong. And we could spend all of our time kind of doing that. And that's not really, everyone comes from so many different places. So we might spend a lot of time talking about a very particular set of things and half the people are just like, <laughs> because it's like, I don't care. That's not on my, it's, so I, I want to present like positive things about what uh, it is, how we think about scripture and in general, you will get uh, an exposure to an orthodox, you could say, mind or ethos about how we do things. And if you have very particular concerns, questions, etc., that that is something that you can, you know, shoot me an email or set up a time to be able to talk about a very specific thing. Um, usually, I give you a bibliography, give you the basics, uh, but a lot of those things. It also requires the differences or the approach sometimes requires just more life and experience and even other things falling into place for you to understand instead of like obsessing like why do they put so much devotion to the, the Theotokos, right? And they just like want to and sometimes you just need to step back, like experience the worship, talk like get a broader and then maybe come then back around to an issue like that. Uh, because dropping, like, this is the typical way a lot of debates go. Well, the internet is a, it's a whole new brand new thing in way of arguing. You know, text, like, here's my text, here's my verse, here's my chapter and verse, here's my thing, and we just go back and forth and sparring. And usually the issue is first principles. Like, it's the way we approach the entire thing that is different. So, no, I can't give you you know, first or third Thessalonians 2-3 that says, and this is now the priest what wears these things, right? Like, uh, that, that is not how we approach scripture. So let's uh, begin. Why, why we're using the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed is very early, very, very early in the church. You already see this in Acts. Uh, at the admission of Christ is Lord in the book of Acts, that was... Uh, what you needed to confess in order to be received into the church, to be baptized. Uh, as this, uh, the church grew and more and more uh, exposure to the broader Greco-Roman world, you needed to be more specific about the content or what follows from that. So the, you started having rules of faith. Uh, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, 
these confessions of faith that then would evolve, evolve is not really the word, but they would basically end up being agreed, this is what we need to confess, they were all tied intimately to baptism. It wasn't just an abstract statement of faith, but it was something that you learned as you were being initiated and incorporated into the church. So when we talk about, at the very beginning of the Nicene, I'm just going to stop saying Constantinopolitan, the Nicene Creed, uh, with God the Father, we mean that we believe in one God who created heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. So visible, we can kind of probably agree, basically, what we understand by visible, right? The invisible is always a little bit more complicated, but this means that God created all of the angelic hosts, the demons, or those who are not a part of the good aspect of that, were originally created by God, not as demons, but as angelic beings, a part of the bodiless hosts that uh, exist, that they then went their own path. But we have in uh, the very beginning of the Bible, a we start with creation. We start at the very beginning. So the creed starts with creation, the one who made everything, that everything depends upon God the Father and his creative act with the Son and the Holy Spirit to bring all things into being. So when we look at Genesis, there's a lot of approaches to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis meaning the beginning, right? And there are approaches to Genesis that uh, will get mired down in talking about, you know, uh, evolution or not evolution or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I want us to think about Genesis and look at it in a different way uh, than what you might be thinking. Genesis, uh, when Adam and Eve are created, the way and the structure at which Genesis lays out in the first uh, chapter with how everything is ordered and created, and then the creation of Adam and Eve and putting them uh, over this paradise, this creation, that they are to look over it, to tend it, uh, to be fruitful and multiply as God has commanded the rest of creation. What you have with Genesis in the garden it reverberates or echoes throughout the rest of the Old Testament. What Adam and Eve are placed in is not just heaven or something like this, but it is probably better, uh, not probably, I'll say, it is better for you to think of them having been put basically in a garden, palace, or temple. That they are there to worship, they're there to commune with God, there's order and structure to the entire world. They have uh, the ability, because of their reason, they are to name things. They are, in one way of talking about it, they were created to be kings and queen and queen. Uh, they are to rule and steward over creation. Uh, they were to speak the truth of the created things by naming them. Uh, they are then also to offer thanksgiving. Uh, they are to turn towards God. I mean, you literally have in Scripture they're talking that they that God walked with them, which this these themes of walking with God then throughout the rest of Scripture, those who are following after God uh, are walking with God. The issue, as I think we all know, is that Adam and Eve abdicated their role as prophet, king, and I forgot to say priest that they were to offer up thanksgiving and sacrifice. They were made in the image of God for this specific vocation of being royalty. I'll just say royalty instead of saying kings over and over again. Royalty uh, for speaking the truth and for offering sacrifice. Then their abdication, their stepping away from, they're going outside of the boundaries of this, they existed in a very specific place. They were to mediate. They were this uh, in-between. They served in this in-between between the heaven and the earth, right? We're talking about the, the God the Father who made heaven and earth. And humans are made 
to stand right in between the heavens, God, and the earth. So in that in-between place, they are to govern and rule, to uh, make things flourish. The problem is, is that they turned everything upside down. Humans are made to, we're, we're obviously physical, we also have a soul and spirit, and we are oriented towards God. It's where life comes from for us. Because if God, the Father, and the Holy Trinity was to, in some way, recede from everything, we just, whoosh, because we don't exist without his governing presence and guidance. So when there was a turn towards uh, this world, the earth, this is, if you think about St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, when they traded the creator for a creature, they looked for their end, their goal, their desire, moved away from God towards that tree and its particular fruit. They then traded and left their spot of mediating between heaven and earth. Not that they, this is always the role of humans, that we are to bridge that space, that gap. We can see this reverberate throughout Genesis and the abdication of their uh, role. But first, if you look at Genesis 3, uh, what, is, what immediately happens after uh, they partake of the fruit? They saw they saw that they're naked. Shame immediately rushed in, right? Uh-oh. There is, suddenly, they were able, if you, it's almost like they physically, they were like, their heads are in the skies. I'm, I'm using a meta, right? They, they, they know, and then all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, okay, halt, <laughs> something. Okay. What else happens? They hide. When, when God shows up, he goes looking for them, right? They get to hear him. What happens? There's then, of course, the blame game, right? She, the one you gave me, she's the one who... So, Adam, not, it's not... A lot of times we talk about, like, they just shifted over. It's the man blaming the wife. But it's Adam blaming God. Like, you gave her to me. You misled me. Right? We're already... Like, you just see this perfect... Like, everything is going well, and then you just immediately... Like, poop, poop. The hiding, the shame, the the blaming, the division. They divide themselves from God. They divided themselves against each other. And then there are the curses or the consequence that God provides for them. What are those? Enmity. Enmity between... For the desire for you to rule, but enmity... What else happens? There's something else that happens. Yeah, you're going to have to sweat now. The earth itself, so there's a division between God and humans, and humans, and now there's a division and gap between us and the earth. We're, here's a later word, alienated, right? Where there's alienation now comes in, and the, the earth does not just produce and give to us. We now have to cultivate, we have to sweat, we have to work. What else happens? There's something else specifically about enmity. Well, there's death because God kills animals to make clothing for them. Yes. They're, they're clothed in skins, garments, because they were naked before. The fathers of the church will have an intro. They, they will talk about actually that they receive fallen bodies, actually. Uh, that they are now uh, given, that their bodies are now going to give themselves over to death. That God has blessed them actually to, at some point, and the mercy of that division, that there's going to be into it with death. Yes. I heard once that when God created Adam and Eve, they don't have this physical body. They have a body, but not the physical body. But when they sin and when they eat the apple, this. Body, I, I forget the word of description, but it's not the physical, the human body. So that's what, yeah, so the, father, the, way, the way the fathers talk about it is that they had, 
they had bodies, their spiritual bodies, and they became like fleshly bodies. It's almost like you go to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about resurrection bodies. They basically had whole, perfect bodies. They, and then this is not, so this is an occasion where you can start thinking like, okay, so Orthodox think bodies are bad. And that's not the case. The, the, the point is that uh, we have death within us because of sin, and we're going to die. So we also have, there's a difference between this and then like, car, like carnality, fleshliness, right? Uh, lust, uh, the anger, all of these other things that are in us that are oriented not towards God. There's also then a promise that is given, right? They, their child labor is going to be uh, hard. There's also then that there's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, because the serpent, we haven't talked about the serpent, but the serpent, the deceiver, the father of lies, who is here, uh, is creating all sorts of trouble. And he is throughout the rest of Scripture there. When you go through the rest of Genesis, a lot of these themes repeat themselves. You have, uh, when you go look at Cain and Abel, what's the issue with Cain and Abel? It's an issue of sacrifice, right? At its heart. And then out of that issue of sacrifice, you have division, death, envy. You, you just, and it, as you continue through Genesis, you just see, right? And you get to the Tower of Babel, the continued spread of the problem. This, especially as uh, God calls together, uh, and we'll get into Exodus, you can see how there's this constant abdication, uh, like failing to live into what a human is supposed to be like. They fail to sacrifice correctly. They fail, they start lying. That, so they don't speak prophetic truth. They don't actually speak what God, what God how God wants things. Uh, they also uh, don't lead. They actually start warring against each other. And when you, each other's each other. <laughs> And once you get to uh, the Tower of Babel and the calling of Noah, uh, this whole issue uh, has metastasized. The Tower of Babel, the creating of Babel, is in many ways, if you were to look, if you think of Tower of Babel, you need to think of like a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is in the Middle East? Uh, not Middle East uh, per se, because... Uh, Iran, Iraq, right? Like the old, uh, what do they call it when we're growing up? The, uh, the basin or the uh, fertile, crescent. fertile crescent. Thank you. <laughs> That's probably. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that would have been, because that was a, a temple, right? Uh, and so when they are basically building up to, to heaven, we think. Uh, they, what they're basically trying to do is they're trying to recapture Eden. They want the Garden Temple back. They want eternity. It's just like Adam and Eve all over again. They're, they're going to become gods, right? Because gods is like, <laughs> they're trying to become like us. They're trying to get up here. But is it also fair to say that um, because of the way the ancient world worked with gods and getting a god and making, putting it into a device and then so some kind of thing and then taking care of that thing, that they were trying to do the same thing to God, that they were trying to trap him and make him like one of the, the gods of that ancient world where they would, you know, produce things for him and then tell him, I want you to do this stuff for me now. Yeah, I think what you, you basically have throughout Genesis is this, uh, and we'll talk about it because we're going to spend more time in Exodus than in Genesis today, well, hopefully. <laughs> but we, you have, as soon as Moses is up on uh, Mount Sinai, they make an idol. And then they call it the God who delivered them, right? So you have this constant uh, forgetting of who God is, forgetting of what humans are supposed to be. Uh, and then God, in the midst of all of this, uh, starts making promises. He starts intervening. You have, the, the, with Noah, you have the dissolution and death that is happening uh, where God is about ready to wipe it all out, and he starts anew with the Noah flood. And we start with Abraham and the promise to Abraham that he is going to, out of Abraham, bless 
the world through his, uh, through his lineage. This is then renewed with Jacob, uh, and it's also renewed uh, with Joseph and the belief in God's promise. Uh, this becomes one of those threads of the Old Testament. Now, God doing this, uh, he is wanting, because the beginning there was communion, right? God was dwelling with his people. And as we go through Genesis, uh, God is not someone who's going to force himself upon creation. Because he has given, this is one of the, the cornerstones for Orthodox, is that God gave us freedom. And so what we have throughout Genesis is the misuse of this freedom. So God realizes, he knew this was going to happen. It's not that he suddenly was like, oh yeah, I forgot. God needed to start preparing a people because if God is going to dwell with his people, he has to dwell with them in a particular way. So with Abraham, he has to, this is where you have the election of Israel. You have to choose a people to prepare them, to make them understand. Uh, because as, if you've ever tried to teach someone, especially a child, something, the repetition, 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 you have to show them, right? You have to like draw it out. You maybe have to put it into a song. You have to make it memorable. You have to do all of these things in order for them to learn. So God, if he's going to reveal himself to all of humanity, has to start this with a particular group of people. This is why he chooses Israel. Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph uh, leads, and it's through Joseph that he leads uh, who are now becoming God's chosen people, uh, he brings them to Egypt where they are to wait out uh, this famine uh, that they were having. And then Egypt has this famine. And then we have, of course, uh, the rescue of God's people from Egypt. And this is where uh, the book of Exodus. So we've gone very quickly and a very high way over Genesis. Once you get to Exodus, we are now in, uh, in a very important uh, part and key to or Orthodox worship and understanding of how we relate to God. So what happens? You have Moses. You can draw a little bit upon the movies you've maybe seen to at least get a, a basic outline. But God hears the cries of his uh, people Israel that they are enslaved to Pharaoh uh, he calls forth Moses at the burning bush. So we have, again, uh, God. Uh, there's this interesting thing with trees and with revelation or problems. So instead of a, we have a bush or a tree, basically, God showing himself to Moses. Uh, Moses needs some help. Uh, he has to have his brother uh, Aaron. But what is the great takeaway from this encounter at the burning bush? What happens? Moses takes off his shoes. That's something that happens. What's, what's the major thing? What does God say? What, what does Moses say, ask him? Like, who, what, who are you? Because if I'm going to go free, you know, if you're telling me, then I need to know who you are. So it is God revealing himself, saying, again, we're going back to Genesis, right? Like, they used to know who he was. They walked with him. They talked with him. And now God is, like, he's revealed himself to Abraham. He's revealed, and now with Moses, we get an even more intense revelation. This is my name, which is kind of a non-name at the same time, right? It's like, I am who I am. I am. I exist. So Moses is goes and you have this great epic struggle and battle uh, with the Pharaoh and his magicians uh, and all of the deceit. And uh, if you notice, they, they have the ability to do all sorts of signs as well. But it is finally they can't keep up with uh, Moses and Aaron and God wanting them. What does God want to do with them? He, he wants to take them out of Egypt for a reason. To worship. So God in communion with him is always going to be worship. Moses and them, they free themselves uh, through God, of course. They, they, bring, uh, they are brought out of Egypt. 
they go through the Red Sea where you have Moses, uh, it splits, uh, they walk through, and then they wander in the wilderness for a while. And I want us to focus mostly on what happens on Sinai. They have been tested in the desert. They have been uh, brought through the water. They are being fed by God. But now God needs to create a covenant and a covenant meal and all of the things to basically Reestablish a lot of the things that had been broken uh, at Genesis. So, what is when he God has called them to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19? If anyone wants the the notes of this, I have specific. I'm not going to hit every single specific verse, uh, but if you go to Exodus 19 and verse five, the reason why God called the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt is to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are to become royalty. They are to become priests. They are to become prophets. They are to be returned to that position that they, uh, well, they have and hold, but they do not function as. So the preparation for Sinai is very specific. You have in Uh, When they've drawn close to this mountain, you have God say to Moses, Go and solemnly charge the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will descend upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely die. Not a hand shall touch him, nor shall he surely be... But he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the thunders, the trumpets, the cloud depart from the mountain, they shall ascend the mountain. So Moses went down the mountain to the people and sanctified them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, be ready for the third day, and do not come near your wives. The Orthodox Church is like Scripture outlines There is holy space. There is space that is set aside for the encounter with God. It is, we're standing in the space where we are set aside to encounter God. The Orthodox uh, temple is rooted in what we will discover, uh, what is revealed to Moses when he finally goes up the mountain and God reveals to him the outline for the tabernacle. When Orthodox worship is rooted directly in Old Testament worship, that is goes back to exactly what Adam and Eve were supposed to be doing. When you walk into an Orthodox church the, and you read about the tabernacle or later the temple, uh, you read about gold everywhere. You read about embroidered linens. You read about curtain, the veil that uh, from the holy of holies to the holy place. You have the offering of incense. You have uh, when you go to with the altar. That is a space, as we're just talking about. That only people who are blessed to go back behind the iconostasis are to go back there. Only clergy are to touch the altar, or the proskuni table, which is where we prepare the elements. Uh, when you look at, and I encourage you next time you look at uh, the altar, specifically the uh, candle, the candelabra that is on there, you'll notice that it has like leaves, and it's like branches. This is what they were asked to do and create in the tabernacle. Why do you think uh, it would have leaves and branches on it. What, why, what is that? Besides that, it was, this is what you do. Like yeah? This, the, 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 the origin of life. The origin of life? Right. There's a reason why we started in Genesis, right? The tree. The tree. We have on the altar, we then have the food that <laughs> has guided Israel, the manna, right? We have pre-sanctified gifts that are there for those who are sick, that it resides within the tabernacle. 
On the altar, we have also basically the command or the law of God. They're not the, ten, uh, they're not the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them like they were in the Ark of the Covenant, but we have the law of God sitting upon uh, the altar. We have also then the tree that's beside, right? You have the cross that is the tree of life that buds forth immortality. We, in entering into Orthodox worship, are entering into sacred space that is set aside. That is something uh, like Moses when he encountered God in the burning bush. God reveals himself in particular ways, in particular spaces, uh, for us to return back to the communion that we are to have with him. And he does this uh, not just like Moses had to take his shoes off. Uh, the fathers will interpret that as a way in which he had to take, a, take away, because what would his sandals have been made of? Skin, right? Flesh. What does that remind you of? Do what? Dead things, right? So dead things. But covered in sin. Let's go back to Genesis. Being clothed with animal skins. So the fathers, Gregor Nyssa, will... He interprets Moses having to take off his sandals as he has to put aside his fleshiness, not his body, but his carnalness, in order to encounter God. So that might help. We have this sanctification, washing, and then this odd, that last line, be ready for the third day, do not come near your wives. There is within uh, there, the marital act is something that uh, is not in and of itself dirty or... But there is something that the church, and it's our tradition, uh, that if you are going to commune on the morning of, the night before, you do not have sexual relations. This is not some made-up random thing to be more ascetical than somebody else or whatever, but it is firmly rooted in Scripture. Uh, to come to know God... Uh, you need to, especially with as weak as we are, we need to be able to focus and be uh, ready to receive him, just as the people in the Old Testament, in order to receive him on the mountain, uh, were called aside to set aside that for a time. What happens in this specific space is Moses uh, goes up as a mediator between the Lord and the people, and he goes down. Let's see here. Well, what happens when he goes up into the mountain? The, the physical things. There's the trumpet. All the people in the camp tremble. There's, he's enveloped in smoke. <laughs> Worship. He is encountering God. And he then, this is where he receives the commandments. So there is intimately tied into this encounter with God, then the reception and the giving of the teaching of what God desires his people to be like. Because as much, there is that encounter with God, but then there's also the restructuring and relearning how to go back to be the Adam and Eve, to be the king, the queen, the prophet, uh, the priest, and the way to do that is to follow the law, like we heard in the gospel this morning. There is an altar that is built, because, and there is then uh, the giving over to Moses the outline of the tabernacle. This is over in Exodus 25. I'll read a few verses here, where he, in giving the tabernacle, he very specifically says, I have a Bible that the... The numbers are very hard to see here. So when you make this sanctuary, you shall make this sanctuary and I will appear among you. The tabernacle, the physical presence, this is verse 22. There I shall make myself known to you and I shall speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This is all once they have built the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and verse 34. Let me flip over there. So they have built 
the place where they are going to encounter God. You then have in verse 40 and verse 3, chapter 40, 34, if that makes more sense. Except, guess what? There's no such thing. It must be 3 through 4. <laughs> Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of testimony, and the tabernacle was filled with the Lord's glory. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of testimony because the cloud overshadowed it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud ascended from the tabernacle, the children of Israel prepared to depart with their belongings. You have God's guidance, uh, his presence, his revelation to his people, his preparing them, teaching them, all of these things happens around the tabernacle. And we've the Ark of the Covenant, the commandments, you have all of this. This theophany of God, this and then the, that cloud, his Shekinah, his glory, filling that place. This is how God dwells with his people. This is how the Orthodox Church understands that God dwells with his people. It is something that the the church fathers will talk about this, because you can say, okay, you're emphasizing very much the the, the space, the sacred space, but a lot of what Christianity uh, more broadly teaches, it's all in your heart. It's all, you get ideas, you confess Jesus is Lord, then you're saved. Well, the fathers of the church will talk about that the, there is basically three temples. There is uh, the cosmic temple, the entire world, which God's dwe- glory dwells. There is then this specific temple, or the churches, where God dwells. And then there's, and if we go to Paul, right, every single one of us is to be a temple, to have God's glory dwelling within us, to have his, ta- his commandments engraved upon our heart, uh, to have uh, our heart be uh, in our bodies, to go back to that, to be spiritualized, uh, to be healed, you could use all sorts of different words here, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not, and if you go to the book of Romans and Paul, it's not that Paul is talking about that the Holy Spirit is your feelings, or uh, ec- ecstatic uh, experiences, but it is God working sanctification and healing uh, to ba- bring resurrection to your body. God calls out his people to into the wilderness, to Mount Sinai, to hear his word, and the people are to receive it and to basically say the amen. This, call, this calling out and this assembly at Mount Sinai, uh, it ends, there's a sacrifice at an altar, and then there's a meal. There is, uh, you may not remember this from Exodus, uh, usually we, you spend a lot of time at the burning bush, uh, the Ten Commandments, Moses getting mad and breaking the tablets because they built the, the golden calf. Well, there's a meal that you could skip where Moses and the elders go up onto the mountain and they sit down with God and they have a meal. This is Exodus 24. In some ways, uh, the, there is a, um, a priest who's gone on to the Lord now. Uh, he had been Protestant. He had actually helped found Campus Crusade, if you know what Campus Crusade is, before he became Orthodox. And he, uh, when he encountered Orthodoxy, uh, and started digging in, one of the things that he would say is, Orthodoxy, may, I had all, my Bible was, had all these like underlines and highlights all through it, but then Orthodoxy made me go through and like highlight all the p- passages that I hadn't highlighted because I didn't know what to do with them. So when you get to a place like uh, Exodus 24, uh, verse 9, this is after they have sacrificed Uh, I'm I'm going to read this whole section, actually. Now, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron. Right, Come up. You're going to have to come up the mountain. Nadab and Abihu, a little infamous there. We'll read about them later. 
70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to God, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of God and all the ordinances. He's teaching them. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord spoke, we will do. Amen. Right? Then Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve stones according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered whole burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of calves to God. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he poured on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and said, and they said, all the Lord said, we will do and be obedient. Amen. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord made with you according to all these words. After this, Moses went up along with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of the Israel, and they saw the place where the God of Israel stood. Under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and the appearance of heaven's firmament in its purity. And of Israel's chosen men, not one were missing. So they saw the place of God, and ate and drank. When you read scripture, you have to, it is good if you go through, and the like, I wouldn't say chronological, because that would be a misnomer, but you work through scripture, and you read it together, that it is like a symphony, that you don't just zero in and be like, okay, sapphire stone, uh, what does that mean? And then you're like, oh, okay, sapphire, what you do is you go through, and you're like, okay, this is a theophany, this is God appearing, he's standing, he, this is a throne room scene basically where you have him and under his feet there is sapphire stone and heaven he, this is a heavenly experience that they're having if you go through uh, the rest of the old testament there are theophany after theophany after theophany theophany being uh, we use a lot of greek words so sometimes i have to say hold on a second theophany is god revealing himself right god revealing he is enthroned. He is surrounded by the angels. This instance, they've had the word spoken to them, the commandments, and now they are to sit down and eat and drink with God. They are returning to communion with God. This pattern of temple worship uh, is exactly what we do in the church. We are hearing the word of God throughout the beginning of the liturgy. It's even read. It is then broken for us in a homily. And then we shift and we prepare for the sacrifice and the meal. Our faith is a corporate experience. The coming to church is not just, it's not a rally, it's not uh, individuals coming to kind of give pep talks to each other. We are called out as the people of God to encounter God together, right? There is, mo there is that place for individual experience, that, absolutely. But, and you can see that in Moses, right? But then he sits down and they have a meal, you know, Matt, they eat and drink with God. The whole community? This is also, I think, uh, it is hard for us to think, uh, when we think of the word ritual, we have a cultural current of kind of like, oh, ritual, right? We don't want rituals. We want something new or fresh. And like, but you realize if you've actually lived long enough or you actually take a step back and look at something, like everybody is doing rituals. I mean, doing something new all the time is a ritual. <laughs> like you can't get out of it. Ritual is also something uh, that this is where God shows up. It's not just psychological and internalized stuff. This is how God speaks to, feeds. I mean, it's not, we, we immediately, I think we see God feeds us with his word. Uh, yet he also feeds us physically. It's not, it's something that actually happens this is why we, when we look at baptism, when we look at chrismation, when we look at all of these things, the things that we actually partake in, it's not just ideas that we've thought about. 
Alright, so I just went for a while. Do you all have any questions? Yes? This might be one of those things where we as Orthodox don't try to question God's intent, but why would you say some people or start with some people when not just everyone? Like, why election? Why select? So I, I, I sketch it out a little bit and I'll go with, and I'll provide a little bit more. When you are teaching someone uh, and there is a need to prepare, Israel in some ways was like the Marines or something, where you needed uh, a community to create, I'll even use a different metaphor, they're like a womb, and they needed to create the priesthood. They need, God creates them, but they needed to have, they needed, uh, eventually, God will even redeem their uh, desire to have a king, even though God is like, if you get a king, he's going to be like Pharaoh. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to t- take your money. He's going to fight wars, right? That, and what does Saul do? <laughs> Saul turns around and does all of those things, right? Uh, but he redeems it through David. And then, of course, the, all of these, uh, you have bad priests, just talking about Nadab and Abihu, but you, you're going to have, but you need all of this, uh, if you're trying to talk about God and you're embodied in this world, you have to have a lot of metaphors and you have to have experiences because you don't understand, like if I tried to explain something to you that I couldn't like, like math, right? <laughs> math, the pure, like that language is very abstract and it works in this kind of particular way, but until you actually have to deal with things, uh, do you realize what any of that would even really mean? So choosing a particular people is basically creating a womb in which to be able to create the language, uh, the expectation, to uh, in the way that Orthodox Church would also teach, so when we get the Theotokos as well, that you would have holiness, you have people grabbing on to the word. And Israel is always... Uh, they're open to receiving. Throughout Exodus, the law, there are ways in which you can be grafted into. And there's also an understanding, if you look at Paul and even some of the Old Testament, uh, that God is still working with everybody else outside of Israel as much as possible. The problem is, which Israel, of course, does, but God's got his hand like very specifically on them, uh, he had to, uh, they're all dealing with idolatry. But there are still ideas and a basic understanding that there is a God. Uh, and you can see this through a lot of the pagan ideas, Greco-Roman, throughout the world, that there is kind of almost always in the background there is a creator God. Not always, but there's still remnants of these ideas that are still uh, outside of Israel. You had, if you're going to have God become a human, that means you have to have a woman. <laughs> you have to have a people who are ready to even understand when he comes into the world. Oh, he's going to fulfill David, the, the promise to David. Oh, he's, you know, that would be how I would begin to try and answer that. Well, it's, uh, it's not a question. Go ahead. It's not a question, but sometimes when I think about Adam. Okay, God created Adam and Eve. And there is a gap in the history that all of a sudden disappeared. Then people start rising again. I don't get, okay, we're talking about Moses. Uh, all these people in the Middle East, when they go to, what about the people in China? What about the people in uh, right. Africa? And then how they are created? Because Sometimes it can be crazy talking. God created everybody. Then we have these people. But what about the people? How, how are there people who are reacting to Cain's yes. uh, mark? Like, how is that a big deal if it's just Adam, Eve, and Cain well, and Abel? Yeah. That, it's, it's not a question I try to understand. It like. So there is different ways to approach that. One is that we are only revealed and talked talk about Adam and Eve but that doesn't preclude that there are others that are created uh, or that follow after that. I mean, there's all sorts of, and it's also 
what is, like I started at the beginning, what is the point of the first few chapters of Genesis? In some ways it is to give us an understanding of what the creation and what the beginning was like, but it's also, it's not a science book, right? It, or it's not like the history of all people. So it, they are good questions that I don't immediately have the answers no, to, but there are... It's very hard to answer because the reason I asked that, I saw a lady, she not, she's either Chinese, Korean, something like that. And all of a sudden I found she wearing uh, the cross. Mm -hmm. uh, then I started thinking about the old thing which I read about. Okay, how? What? Christianity actually it spread, spread very, long. very quickly. And, and there was a lot of people who knew about Judaism, uh, that's kind of hard to actually say Judaism. We'll say Israel before. Yes. Uh, so when you are talking about, and I think Paul talks about this in Romans 1 as well, there are those who were able to be as faithful to what they understood as much as possible. And I also think this is where the Orthodox Church also has uh, with uh, John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ to Harrow Hades, that there's an opportunity for those who are not able to hear the gospel to actually receive the gospel. If you have questions about that, I can refer you to a book uh, about the hymnody and theology about what that last point about the herring of Hades. Yes. Can, can you spend a few minutes, if you have it, to talk about, um, <clears throat> it just seems to me that sacred space is, if somebody had asked me a single word to sum up our relationship to God and what that is, is, is that we are to be the sacred space, right? Because you look at the temple, specifically because of Aaron's sons, Mehab and Abihu, and what happened and all the Levitical laws that came after that for purification of space for God to enter and then we look at the Theotokos, how she was able to hold God in all his glory, mm -hmm. um, because she was sacred space. And then you look at all the ways that Israel, that God gave Israel commandments to cleanse and purify spaces with the blood. And then we are now supposed to be the new temple and tabernacle, and so we're supposed to be sacred space. But then how that, because my wife asked me this specifically, and I'm, I'm sure I gave her a terrible answer, um, as a good husband does. And... <laughs> But why, why, why can't just anybody, why can't everybody, how can, how can the Eucharist only exist here? How can just everybody just get it wherever they want? And I tried to explain it to her in sacred space terms, which, again, I, it was me talking. So, so the, the question, so you're talking about the emphasis and importance of sacred space, and then a question about the Eucharist. Yeah, so Israel, the tabernacle, then, uh, then Mary, now us, and then the Eucharist. Right. Because they're all... So... When we interpret, or we are Israel, we're the new Israel. We were called out of sin, out of Egypt. We are, went through the Red Sea, which is our baptism, where, uh, as one of the hymns, uh, I forget exactly where it is, maybe it's Proclesis to Theotokos, or basically the, the noetic army of Pharaoh. The, basically they're saying the passions and things that were killed in our baptisms, where we are destroying the demons, the devils, that you basically have uh, this under the destruction of the army uh, is we interpret that spiritually as uh, the death of our fleshy, uh, carnal self, and we are then uh, brought out into the world to exist as God's people, uh, which is the desert. We're heading to the promised land, which is heaven, and we are given leadership, Moses and Aaron, the 70 elders, uh, which was Moses' father-in-law's suggestion. Uh, you get who was a priest of Median who knew about God, Nihil. You have, he understands who God is as a priest of Median, Midian, and there, there, scripture, there is some, the, 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 God is still working with people. Uh, there is a specific, I think, preservation that he is working in a specific way with Israel that everyone is going to have to get on board. It's not that they are, or Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek just comes out of nowhere. 
and he's got bread and wine, and he's going to have a, like, you know, they're going to have, he's coming from Zion, right? Like, he's coming from Jerusalem. Uh, so, and Abraham tithes to him, which then is part of the reason why Paul argues the way he does in the New Testament about uh, the importance of Melchizedek uh, without a lineage, that he suddenly comes out of nowhere, and he's, and Abraham honors him, right? So, you have in this then God wants to dwell with his people. And so he does that through uh, the creation of the church, I mean, Israel as the church, uh, and then the tabernacle, this specific place where God is with his people, leading them. Uh, and you get all this more specific ways in which he does that. Uh, the sacrifices, uh, the burnt offerings, the incense that is burned, uh, that he goes and his, he's literally present in the temple, in the tabernacle. So, for Orthodox Christians, being baptized and chrismated is your entrance into the church. The reception of Holy Communion is then that meal that you sit down and eat with God. Uh, and then the life of repentance that follows because, there, yes, all of your sins are drowned in the Red Sea, in the baptismal water, right? But as we, uh, anybody who's been baptized knows, you don't magically stop sinning. You are now in the process of uh, the crucifixion, cru self-crucifixion, the self-dying. Uh, uh, this is why the sacraments then continue. It's why we have confession, uh, the, which the fathers will talk about the shedding of tears as a second baptism, not in the sense of like, uh, it's a sacrament where, in the same with the first baptism, you're baptized once, but it is a renewal of the baptismal waters with the tears that fall, that cleanse your heart, and then you are constantly being fed the body and blood of Christ, as uh, Saint Irenaeus will call it the medicine, uh, sorry, Saint Ignatius will call it the medicine of immortality, to prepare us for heaven, that we are being uh, sanctified, and that's uh, we are being spiritualized. The Holy Spirit is transforming our our bodies, our bodies, our mind, our heart. Deacon, I saw you. I was just going to say, even after we've been come through the Red Sea and baptism, we still have in the desert for forty years. And what happens to them in the desert? They complain, and complain. And weren't there enough tombs back in Egypt? And Flesh pots, as the King James Version says. You, you get, uh, well, I also think they say, like, we had onions and garlic and, and cucumbers, right? <laughs> I guess they pickled, pickled them or something. But you, you get with, uh, this is, and this also part of the reason, like, okay, we're spending a lot of time. With the way, when you go back and you read scripture, if you are familiar with scripture, uh, you will approach scripture in a different way because you will be able to see how in the past, like when I was growing up, we read this stuff and be like, this is really interesting historical data. And I can get a moral meaning out of this. Like, uh, I should obey God. Yes, that's true. But this, this text is alive through, of course, as uh, the author of Hebrews, like, who goes through, and Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is great. He goes through all of this because he is the perfect king, right? He is the perfect priest. He is the prophet to end all prophets. He is the word and truth of God. He is the one who's going to have to, uh, he's the one who baptizes us. He's the one who feeds us. He's the one who gives his Holy Spirit to us. He's the one who teaches us. So when we read these things, we have to remember the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ, that all of this is complete. There, it's very popular to say, okay, because in Jesus Christ, the law was put aside, and therefore we don't do anything like this. Well, why? Well, be, because I think... A lot of folks, especially if you're coming from a Protestant background or you're, like, your mind or your imagination is Protestant worship, and I know there's all sorts of different types and varieties of it, um, but you can see the culture that is attached to a lot of the, if you go to a more traditional, I'll say like a, a Lutheran or maybe like more traditional Presbyterian service, 
you can see the remnants of uh, the word and the table. Now, they, sometimes they do, every Sunday they do the, the table and communion. They will have all sorts of debates about what exactly that is. Uh, but then uh, as you move, and there's, even, there's a good book that was written about this, and it was, I think it was the beginning of the 19th century, maybe the end of the 18th century, um, where church changed to entertainment. Church became, and, in, and they started, instead of having sacred space, they built auditoriums. They built, and it, it, it transformed the entire dynamic of what it was. Do what? Sound, sound systems. Yeah, sound systems and, all, you know, as we have a sound system now. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> you gotta, you got to have the bass guitar be able to yeah. come in. Is it like Adam and Eve 2 where, where the Masonic flipped it upside down so now the altar is below the people as opposed to being above? Well, I think what it, 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 individual, it made everything individualized, emotional, uh, or informational, or... You, you lost sacred space. Sacred space became like maybe some, you know, acreage in your heart. Uh, and so therefore, you, you lost God's mediating presence in the assembly, which is, I think, why you have this, you have Pentecostalism is like, we have, because we lost this and we know that we lost something, we got to have a lot of experience. Now, it's not decently in an order, and it's usually, like, it depends. There's all sorts of different charismatics. But then you can also have, like, well, we're not going to do that. We're, you know, the frozen chosen. We have everything, like, figured out, and, like, here's everything in this package that you just need to upload all this into your brain, and once you have all the information, where Scripture has, you need your brain, you need your heart, but you commune with God, uh, in a, I mean, the fathers are talking about the news, so I don't want to get into that right now. But you're, you're communing with him uh, physically, ritually, sacramentally is the better word. You know, uh, even better than that, the mystery of the church, the way the, the Greek fathers would talk about the mystery of God's presence in these places that have been set aside and sanctified. And that is, it has your heart, it has your brain, but they're ordered in the correct way that they should be. Uh, so, and then any other questions? I don't know if I answered exactly what you were asking. Um, yeah, yeah. But why? why not, well, you also kind of asked sort of why the Eucharist here and not elsewhere. I yeah, I think it's it's a, the the attachment to, to. I mean, we know that God doesn't change, right? That He's unchanging, and so if if he had to have a place that was pure to show up in his fullness, which is why we had to do all those, they had to do all those things, that we have, maybe it's just kind of this, we have this idea now that if I say my sinner's prayer, I'm not picking on anybody, but just I, that quickness to say, hey, I'm, now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit lives in us and Jesus is in us, but we're we're also partaking of the tree that, we, that was taken from us when we lost the tree of life. We now get to partake in that life for eternal life. And it can't be this just, you know, nominal thing like, oh, well, I was gonna go, to, I was gonna go to McDonald's, but I'll go get the Eucharist now. Like, it's right. there's something that we have to prepare ourselves for a holy God, because otherwise we run into the wrath of God. And I think that ties into what Paul said when he says that some people have taken it and have reaped death or even sickness on themselves. Right, without discernment, right. about not discerning the body. And I think you can interpret that in two different ways. One is not uh, discerning the body, because the whole context is you're having issues with, among the people of God. <laughs> so you're not actually discerning the relationships in the way they need to be in reconciliation. And then the other is not discernment uh, of what it is that you're receiving. Like when Isaiah is, has the coal brought to him, that you are not, you're receiving something and not really taking in fully what it is that you are doing. Jim. I've just learned that many of us, uh, but earlier this week I read on that great treasure trove of theology Facebook. <laughs> I don't remember the citation, but it's someone asked me. Meme too, or something? God is everywhere, then why do I have to go to church? And the elder who replied said, Well, there's water vapor everywhere, but if you want to drink, you have to find a fountain. That God is everywhere present. Absolutely. God chooses, because God is absolutely free to do so, God chooses to set aside a place and say, 
This is where I'm going to meet you specially. And in doing that, by, by choosing to do that, God is then giving us a choice. We can in love respond by saying, well, if that's where God is going to be, then that's where I want to be. And we can choose to go and meet God in that place. Or we can say, no, I'm not going to go to that place. I'm going to stay where I am. God, you've got to meet me here. And at that point, is God God? I mean, it, it, uh, a priest I know years ago said, the moment we've said no, we can't say Lord. Right. You can't say no, Lord, because you said no, you're no longer respecting his authority or submitting to his authority. Right. So it's in that, by designating a special place, um, God is enabling us to then use our will to respond in love to his invitation or to refuse his invitation. You had a king gave a feast, had a wedding, gave a feast, sent out invitations, and oh, I just bought a plot of land, oh, I just bought some cattle, I just married a wife. Well, the wedding feast is in a place and time, and if you're going to be there, you got to get ready and you got to go. It'll be like a Right. I think that also comes back actually to the question of why Israel? Why, why election? It has a lot to do with what we began, right? Like we are made to be discreet. Like I, I take up this space, right? I should probably take up a little bit less space, but this is the space that I take up. I can't, I don't exist in Iowa. I don't, like, I exist here. And my, I, so if I'm going to encounter God, I have to encounter God in a particular place. Uh, the show, like, God, and, and there's always this question, like, well, what, what, I heard this one time, like, why did God have to die on a cross? And somebody said, well, because it's for his glory. And it's it, it just this endless, like, well, God chose to do that because that is the only way that he's going to communicate with us humans. How else, like, he had to come to, like, he meets with him in, on the side of the mountain and sits and ha eats and drinks with them. Uh, there is not, we're embodied, so we're going to have to have understanding that's embodied. Because otherwise, what do we, we, we can't talk about it. We don't even know what to do. That's one, somebody explained to me, God Cannot come to us like, like him. Imagine you have some ants, little ants, fighting about this fruit. And you want to have, if you just put your hand in them, they will scatter and disappear because they are too, too small. And God is too, too big. So he has to simplify and get in a very simple shape that we can agree. And dying in the cross. It was the ultimate, ultimate bad thing to die. So he, he took that, that even if you're bad, I think I'm, if you're bad, I like the cross for you. The bad can be for the cross. So we are, thank you, Neil. Yeah. Uh, we are done with our time, so we're going to end with prayer. The next class, we are going to uh, be jumping into talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, and the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, as Savior and the Messiah. Okay? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but to the rest from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you. So the next class step now is a track.